Welcome to the final episode in this series on artificial intelligence and human rights, a podcast mini-series framed by a conference last April, put on by the Center for Information Technology Policy at Princeton University and the Office of the UN Special Rapporteur for Human Rights and Extreme Poverty. I'm your host, Stevie Berkman. In these episodes, we provided a primer on the technology, what AI is, and its more common subset, machine learning, as well as the different types and how they work. We discussed the human rights framework and the right to social protection and an effective remedy. And last episode, we delved into a few cases where a machine learning algorithm has been used in social protection systems and the key questions and considerations when evaluating these systems. Today, we're going to recap those questions, then get into the recommendations and warnings from the expert panelists at the conference for going forward in the use of AI in social protection, and the main points from the UN Special Rapporteur's thematic report, which he presented to the General Assembly last October 2019. I want to close with just one observation or argument. Professor Edward Felton speaking at the conference. And that is the importance in addressing the, the challenges that exist here and in the importance in taking advantages of these opportunities of integrating the technical and the institutional or policy aspects of these issues. It is not only by working energetically on both sides of that line, but also by thinking deeply and creatively about how to integrate those things that we will be able to make the kind of progress that we can make. Whether you're on the technical or the policy side of this increasingly thin border, it's important to be thinking about what you can do to enable practitioners on the other side of the line to do their job more effectively. And indeed, it's only by fitting together the capabilities, the strengths and weaknesses of these different um, modes of work that we'll be able to, uh, to do the best job. That starts with getting people with these interests into the same room and talking about the challenges, which is part of what we are trying to do today. So first, the questions we should ask ourselves when we hear about these systems being employed anytime, but especially when considering the poorest and most vulnerable individuals. The key considerations were transparency and accountability, as well as bias and fairness, how errors were handled, whether we're optimizing for the right thing in our AI system, this is the issue of proxies. And whenever we're talking about collecting data, we need to be concerned about privacy. So the questions that we discussed last episode are things like, what data is being used? Is the data itself biased? Or is there a group underrepresented in the data? How are errors in the system being distributed across the groups? Is there a feedback loop of any kind where interactions with the system lead to more interactions and so on? What is the system optimizing for? If the system is created to cut costs, that should warrant further scrutiny. Also, is the system optimizing for the right thing? Is the thing it should be optimizing for even measurable? If it isn't, what proxy is being used instead? And is it a good one? Further, have we cut out any human discretion from this decision making? In other words, is there a human in the loop? And very importantly, are there mechanisms for effective and speedy redress? for those who have been harmed or could be harmed by the system. At the very least, we should be asking ourselves these questions whenever we hear of an automated decision-making system being employed. As we discussed in the last episode, there are other considerations, and there are many recommendations for further reading in the notes for the show for you to explore further. 
in every one of these cases, mitigation is possible. Each one of these is a sort of failure or blind spot in the design or operation of a system. And in every case, there's something you can do to reduce the uh, cause of bias. But these problems don't mitigate themselves. I really want to emphasize this takeaway from Professor Felton, that often these issues can be taken into account, and they should be, if the proper care is taken to design and test the system well enough. Note that I said often, because there are certainly cases where the data just doesn't exist, in which case that must be recognized, and if the data can't be collected, say because the thing we are trying to quantify just can't be quantified, for example, how much we love our children or partners, or if we decide that that data just shouldn't be collected, then that's it. Professor Virginia Eubanks. And I share the same concerns around privacy as the central sort of metric, or even data security as a central metric, um, because that assumes you already have the data and that it's appropriate for you to have it. And along these lines, Professor Alston brings the following warning. And that is that AI risks being the principal agent which is complicit in the elimination of the human factor from social protection. In other words, there are people out there who need counselling, people out there who need health advice or whatever. Ah, well, we'll devise ever new programs which will be able to deliver those goods, uh, whether it's through the inhuman interlocutors that Ed was describing earlier, uh, or some other electronic means. All of this is great, and from an AI perspective, we think it's a wonderful development, it's efficient, it's cost-saving, but just think what the actual impact is in terms of what we used to think of as the sort of human interaction which we used to owe to our fellow human beings who are not down and up, because that's a derogatory term, but who need help. In the thematic report, the Office of the Special Rapporteur states that there is an emergence of the digital welfare state in many countries across the globe. In these countries, systems of social protection and assistance are increasingly driven by digital data and technologies that are used to automate, predict, identify, surveil, detect, target, and punish. The report goes on to say that new forms of governance are emerging which rely significantly on the processing of vast quantities of digital data from all available sources, use predictive analytics to foresee risk, automate decision-making, and remove discretion of human decision-makers. In such a world, citizens become even more visible to their governments, but not the other way around. End quote. And in welfare, the use of these systems are growing and globally. The report remarks that these uses often have altruistic intentions. However, and I quote, the digitization of welfare systems has been accompanied by deep reductions in the overall welfare budget, a narrowing of the beneficiary pool, the elimination of some services, the introduction of demanding and intrusive forms of conditionality, the pursuit of behavioral modification goals, the imposition of stronger sanction regimes, and a complete reversal of the traditional notion that the state should be accountable to the individual, end quote. The report is an important read, and I will link to it in the notes for the show, but you can find it yourself on the website for the UN Special Rapporteur for Human Rights and Extreme Poverty. 
it concludes not only with a call for the regulation of digital technologies, including artificial intelligence, to ensure compliance with human rights, but also for a rethinking of the positive ways in which the digital welfare state could be a force for the achievement of vastly improved systems of social protection. Let me read you the last paragraph of the report. To date, astonishingly little attention has been paid to the ways in which new technologies might transform the welfare state for the better. Instead of obsessing about fraud, cost savings, sanctions, and market-driven definitions of efficiency, the starting point should be how existing or even expanded welfare budgets could be transformed through technology to ensure a higher standard of living for the vulnerable and disadvantaged, and to devise new ways of caring for those who have been left behind, and more effective techniques for addressing the needs of those who are struggling to enter or re-enter the labor market. That would be the real digital welfare state revolution. Here is Professor Alston with a clip I played in the previous episode to accompany the case of the pair-kidney match system. I think it's very important to distinguish between a positive and a negative approach to something like social protection. As soon as we get into the field of social protection, there is an overwhelming emphasis on the negative. We don't actually think in the way that you might rationally expect Okay, so I work in the field of social protection. You work in the field of AI. What can you do for me? And the instinctive reaction is, well, we can work out ways of narrowing down the number of people who are going to get these benefits. We can work out ways of telling you exactly what they're doing when they're not working as they should be. We can come up with all sorts of other techniques, but it's never the opposite. Okay, so why don't we get together and think about what the needs are of low-income people in our society and how those needs might more effectively be met if we were to develop AI programs and techniques. That's extremely rare. And here is Professor Mark Fleurbay at the conference. We should start from the needs of the people. We should stop looking at AI possibilities and try to find uses for these things, we should start from the real needs of the people and try to answer them. And so I think that's the right perspective we should take. And it's especially important in the context of poverty and in the context of human, right, uh, human rights consequences for, for the people who are the most vulnerable. And the second uh, chapter I wanted to mention is, if we talk about futuristic technologies, we should also, at the same time, talk about futuristic um, institutions and societies. There is an interesting debate to have about the future of the welfare state, and if we don't connect this debate to the debate about AI, we may be missing something because we'll, uh, we'll try to use AI for the welfare state of the 70s or the 80s of last century instead of connecting the possibilities of AI with the real needs of the 21st century. Quickly, the traditional function of the welfare state is to re rescue the losers of the game, which is very narrow, a bit more ambitious is the idea of the welfare state as preparing people for, for the game, and this is uh, sometimes uh, the notion that has been associated with the third way, uh, so education policies and things like that. But even more ambitious is to change the rules of the game, to make the game much fairer and much more inclusive. And, and there are various ways in which we can uh, develop this idea, but one key way is to make society more participatory, to develop participatory mechanisms in all spheres of decision-making, that includes the state, the interaction between the state and the citizens, but that also includes the uh, private sector, companies, uh, the governance of the economy. 
it also includes global governance, of course. And so this is something that can be um, really interesting and where perhaps AI can help. As he mentioned, going forward, there must be a place for more voices. Here is Hiba Kamal Grayson of Google on the importance of a multi-stakeholder approach. We all need to come together to think about which governance structures that already exist um, are well suited to address these issues and to identify any gaps and um, to make sure that experts across academia and industry can work with governments and civil society to help fill any gaps, to help identify emerging risks and to take steps to mitigate these risks. Pushing back on this is Professor Scarlett Wilcock. Who are we to get in a room? Like, we're, we're, you know, the, the people that are experts in the impacts are those people that are on welfare and have to deal with the system. And Professor Florby again. Uh, people are ultimately their own agents of change and empowerment. And I think that's the perspective we should be taking for social protection. So make the people who are the so-called beneficiaries or the recipients of, of support being the agents of uh, what happens to them. And speaking of those affected, Professor Eubanks brings up citizen movements. I don't want to overplay how much we have to engage the people who are designing these tools. Like, that's great, but it is not the only way to shift these systems. And I'll point you to Los Angeles, which just two days ago um, decided to stop using some of their most central predictive policing programs. And that's not because like a wide variety of stakeholders got together and had a polite conversation. It's because um, social movement groups forced them to do it. Um, and that's happened in Chicago, and that's happening in Australia, and that's happening around the world, really, is that there is active, organized resistance against these systems. If you look at Dorothy Roberts' um, work, for example, she just wrote a piece called um, Digitizing the Carceral State, and there's increasingly a, a movement that calls itself uh, Abolish Big Data. Um, so increasingly there is this, the, these movements that see this as part of the work of abolition of, of the carceral state. So there are lots of ways to influence this policy, and it, it'd be nice if we could, we could do it in a polite way, but I'm not sure, I'm not sure if that's going to be what happens. This may be a power never concedes anything without a demand kind of moment. There are many roles to play going forward. We primarily need the voices of those affected, but also technology experts, ethics experts, and policy and legal experts. One worthwhile exercise for policy stakeholders across sectors might be um, assembling a collection of best practices to explain AI-based outcomes, along with a commentary and explanation about what makes explanations good, or um, conversely, some bad explanations and what makes them bad. Here again is Hiba Kamal Grayson. When it comes to fairness appraisals, I do think governments have a huge role to play in sort of developing and modeling best practices. And civil society has a huge role in creating frameworks to balance uh, competing goals and competing definitions of fairness. Uh, when it comes to safety considerations, I do think that researchers from the public, private, and academic sectors could work together to kind of outline some basic workflows and standards for um, specific application context to show what due diligence looks like when it comes to safety in AI systems. And when it comes to uh, human AI collaboration, government and civil society, um, I think, can work together to identify some of those red lines where you really do need to have a human in the loop. In the thematic report, essentially the same point is made. However, the emphasis is on governments to take the lead role. I quote, Digital technologies, including artificial intelligence, have huge potential to promote the many benefits that are consistently cited by their proponents. They are already doing so for those who are economically secure 
and can afford to pay for the new services. They could also make an immense positive difference by improving the well-being of the less well-off members of society. But this will require deep changes in existing policies. The leading role in any such effort will have to be played by governments through appropriate fiscal policies and incentives, regulatory initiatives, and a genuine commitment to design the digital welfare state not as a Trojan horse for neoliberal hostility towards welfare and regulation, but as a way to ensure a decent standard of living for everyone in society." End quote. And the report comments that governments thus far have not been fulfilling this role. It says, the reality is that governments have certainly not regulated the technology industry as if human rights were at stake, and the technology sector remains a virtually human rights-free zone." End quote. To the extent that there is discussion of, and there always is, of the notions of transparency and accountability, they bear no relationship to their human rights cousins of transparency and accountability. Professor Alston at the conference. Accountability in the human rights area is the accountability essentially of the state. It also, of course, applies to private actors, but essentially through the state. What we see in the AI area generally is that we are not even outsourcing, because outsourcing um, implies some sort of continuing relationship. But instead of the state being responsible to protect your human rights, suddenly it is large tech companies and others that are taking it upon themselves to define, first of all, what your rights are by talking vaguely about ethics, uh, and then to set themselves up as the arbiters of whether or not those ethical entitlements that you have, because they're no longer rights, are actually being protected. Balancing this complicated, multifaceted mix of our humanity and our technology is not new. Many of the ethical questions being asked here have just been made more salient by AI. However, they've been around, considered and debated for many years. And in policies that affect the poorest and most vulnerable in our society, these questions have the gravest of consequences. And how we answer them is a direct measure on all of us. This is beautifully stated by Martin Luther King in his speech entitled, Remaining Awake Through a Great Revolution, delivered in 1968. I will play this for you after the sign-off at the very end of the show. But going forward, as the powerful technology of artificial intelligence and machine learning and digital technologies in general take on a larger and larger role in our lives, I hope you do not become complacent. And certainly that you are not cowed by the new fancy lingo of the technology or any attempts at obfuscation. Do not be dazzled by the shininess of it. But rather, I hope that you continue to learn about the uses of artificial intelligence with an eye to being both critical and hopeful. Ask all the questions we've already discussed, but you could go further. Try to find out who this new technology is being used on. What's the goal? Is the goal fulfilling a need of the people it should be serving? If the goal is altruistic, is it really working towards that goal? And with any tech or policy for that matter, has it been tested sufficiently before it's been deployed? Further, is there a genuine non-digital option available, at least for citizens interacting with the system? Keep in mind that many individuals, even in the most developed countries, do not have easy access to the internet 
or even a computer. And I'll just repeat from earlier because this is so important. Is our right to an effective remedy being met? Is there some method for accountability and some means for a remedy for those who might be harmed by this system? Keep in mind that no human or artificial intelligence system is 100% accurate all of the time. Remember that AIs form statistical models, and like any policy, there will be problems and unforeseen issues. Avoiding harm is paramount. There needs to be testing and means for redress, especially in the area of social protection, where the citizens being affected are the most vulnerable among us, with the least ability to absorb any harm. This is an ongoing conversation about the most basic questions of our society, of our rights and needs and what we owe to each other. And going forward, we need all the voices in the room, especially those being affected by the policy. Thank you so much for listening. I sincerely hope this was helpful. For more information on this topic, I recommend taking a look at the notes along with the show. And any comments or questions can be sent to aihrpod at gmail.com. This podcast was supported by the Center for Information Technology Policy at Princeton University, and I've been your host, Stevie Bergman. One day, we will have to stand before the God of history. We will talk in terms of things we've done. Yes, we will be able to say, we build gargantuan bridges to span the seas. We build gigantic buildings to kiss the skies. Yes, we made our submarines to penetrate oceanic depths. We brought, brought into being many other things with our scientific and technological power. Seems that I can hear the God of history saying, that was not enough, but I was hungry, and ye fed me not. I was naked, and ye clothed me not. I was devoid of a decent sanitary house to live in, and ye provided no shelter for me, and consequently you cannot enter the kingdom of greatness. If ye do it unto the least of these, my brethren, do it under me. That's a question facing America today.